and welcome to Technically Speaking, where scientists and engineers come together to chat about common interests, share knowledge and satisfy some curiosity. I'm Laura and I'm joined by Emma and Antonia to talk about how we first encountered data science and what we use it for. So Emma, you're a physicist, so what's your interest in this, given your background? My interest in data science kind of stems from the fact that I need it to analyse things and analyse lab results and data. Um, But I started off using it uh, when I was in college or even high school physics uh, by doing some kind of basic stats in my maths. Um, But I think I only kind of got the importance of it when I started to allow it to help me describe if data was important and if it was significant and how that kind of comes into play with how valuable your results are. So yeah, I did stats in school as well. And I really thought about it is this fancy thing that people call data science at the time, because data science wasn't really a thing people talked about like 20, 30 years ago. But now it seems like it's a whole industry. You see stuff on the internet and they make it sound like kind of mysterious, but it's just maths, right? It's just applying it. <laughs> yeah. Way. Yeah. I guess we'll get into the different kinds of it in a minute. But uh, Antonia, I guess your experience as an engineer and energy analyst is a little bit different to Emma's physics background. There are a few overlaps. We've got a lot of data that you want to try and understand. Is it a pattern or is it not a pattern? Because then you can kind of predict or say that is standard and this is what we would expect or there's something that needs addressing so in in energy you've got a lot of data now so electricity is on uh measured on a half hourly basis so then in a in a day you've got 48 data points and then over a year 365 times 48 and then you have to start thinking which which is normal behavior and which is abnormal behavior and what is something that I can actually affect and how much of it is just randomness. Um, so I, yeah, a bit of statistics and then it turns into data science. I'm not sure. Like we used to just call it statistics, right? Is what you were kind of saying, Laura. Yeah, I guess so. The stuff I did in A-levels was like, you know, finding standard deviations and finding if you've taken a sample of a population in a pond, say, what is the actual population of that pond? Which seemed Mm. quite simple. It wasn't dealing with huge data sets, which is what I ended up doing in my master's in uh, process analytics, where you'd have like dozens of variables from a processing plant that spanned like months or years of operation. And you had to figure out what those patterns were, as you said. So I guess it's just (laughs) how much data are you dealing with and how much more complicated does that make it? Uh, So I guess we've kind of described what data science is to an extent, as far as we understand it, given none of us is a data scientist. (laughs) Emma, you were talking about using it in school for stats. I I mentioned finding the mean in data in um, standard deviation. I guess that's the simplest way that we'd probably use it. And you probably use it quite a lot because I used to use that in pretty much any type of data collection that I did. You know, you'd always find get like at least three data points and find the average and then yeah. calculate your error. Yeah. I mean, even simpler than that, you can go back to median and mode as well, which I think, you know, gradually you don't use because they're not, <laughs> you know, maybe the most useful. Um, but yeah, no, definitely standard deviation I use just all the time. Like that is my error on measurements. Mm-hmm. And 
it allows you to when you go into like different distributions and not to get too complicated um but you know when things lie outside one standard deviation i think the percentage is you're like 65 percent confident that it's that your conclusion can be valid or something but if it's outside three then it should be really unlikely that you should have a deviation of that range depending on the distribution so you can actually use it to like get um, confidence limits and really kind of when you analyze your data starts to become less binary and more like is how confident am I that this is good and then if it's not good or you're not that confident then you can start to take more repeats and rethink about your experiment as well so I think when you get more complex it allows you to actually design experiments better and how you analyze them better I don't know if that was answering in the right realm but um this is where my brain went to fair enough that does make sense so Emma I think standard deviation and number of standard deviations is quite a good measure but sometimes for say like population statistics or gender pay gap those outliers, if you used a mean, would be way too um, skewed. Hmm. So instead, median is a better measure because you've ordered all of the pay that people get in terms of size, and then you find what's the most middling one. I wanted to say the most like medium one, and I was like, <laughs> no, that's not going to help. I guess that's yeah. what gives you an idea of... Because... Like, if you wanted to use the median and the standard deviation, you assume it's got like a normal distribution, so it's quite symmetric. Yeah. You know, aren't like, mm-hmm. like people getting paid an awful lot at one end of the scale, say, or people not getting paid a lot to create that non-bell-shaped curve. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I've just worked in Gaussian a lot. It's just always you approximate everything to be a Gaussian, so it's my, <laughs> yeah. uh, it's my default um, distribution. Yeah, I guess when it comes to physical sciences, you just kind of assume that there isn't anything sort of disrupting your data set in that way. It is just sort of, there's a little bit of random noise in there and that's it. Mm-hmm. Mm. I mean, we're talking about like relatively straightforward maths. And I remember in my master's doing different types of regression analysis. Like I said, I was looking at loads of different variables at one point and you were trying to figure out, you know, which variable is most important for the thing that you're trying to model. But I don't really remember any of the regression statistics all that well. I don't suppose either of you two have encountered them and can explain it to me again. <laughs> um, I wouldn't say it was particularly complicated, the one that I would use for energy, but sometimes say, you know, in winter, it's, it's colder, so people would have more heating. But how do you know if someone's overheating their house and say i don't know something's broken with their heating system because it's not reading off the thermostat which should tell it when to stop heating up the house and you get you know 30 degrees in winter um so we would use something called regression analysis which yeah was basically like those correlation graphs you do x against y and then see the best fit line and how much of it was off the best fit line and then you've got how strong a correlation potential potentially causation and effect but not Mm -hmm. necessarily um but then you could do that for multiple uh variables and you get a multi-regression um don't know what the word for it is this model multi-regression model and then you could recreate it to say 
for a different set of values in those variables, you could then hopefully predict what that system would do if it was acting the same way. Okay, so I guess you'd say if it was colder next year outside, would someone's heating system act differently? And can you predict how that would act, taking into account that they might not manage it efficiently? Yeah. So, so yeah, if it if like suddenly the heating system became less efficient, say, um, you know, they had a leak. So, so some of the hot water wasn't actually going through their radiators, actually just leaking outside the house. So then inside they weren't feeling that warmth. Then, yeah, you could sort of say, ah, yes, we were expecting you to use this much, but used you more. Mm. So something is a little weird about that. Oh, it's interesting. Yeah, it sounds like quite a powerful, like a real world. You can see how this would be useful immediately. You can help it, like yeah. fault finding, or you see how behaviors changed. Yeah, only if you know if you can accurately model that system. Because if there's some variables that you aren't able to track, say someone is constantly changing the set temperature, because you kind of assume that someone always wants the house to be 21, but someone else could be occasionally going, you know what, I want it to be 25 degrees. <laughs> and so the system that you've compared it against is no longer the same system. Oh, wow, yeah. So you need to add in more variables for different people. So you've got like, John likes it really cold and Kate likes it really hot. So you variable John and variable Kate. <laughs> Maybe. Or you just kind of say, sorry, John or Kate, we want it to be this way and that's it. <laughs> so that we can have a nice predictable system <laughs> And we know how much energy you should be using. <laughs> the constant struggle in the office. <laughs> yeah. Whereas physicists just say, we're just going to ignore that thing because it, it yeah. makes like 2% of an effect. Oh, we don't really care. It's accurate, you know. Yeah. Everything's in a vacuum. Everything's in a vacuum. <laughs> everything's a spring. Everything's a Gaussian. Everything's spherical. Yeah, everything's perfectly <laughs> spherical. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say... Um, when you mentioned uh, regression as well, it kind of took me back to, I mean, I guess A-level maths, but also A-level biology and like the different like uh, population statistics and like um, like students t-test. I'm like throwing statistical tests out there now, like without fully remembering <laughs> the entire context. But I remember using them when we were doing like um, like quadrant sampling and then like extrapolations, like whole areas and stuff. Uh, you do different statistical tests to try and like get a good estimate for you know how many species are in this area um so i guess it also is very it's kind of like applying i mean it's still very like sciencey application not very accurate um <laughs> in style mm -hmm. um but it's really interesting to see the like actual real life kind of applications of it because i've only ever done it in kind of a theoretical context which is interesting mm. Well, when I first started as an energy analyst, that was something that my team was trying to do was say, could we model if we had all this data to then say, right, this is how much we think this site should consume. But there were too many variables that we tried mm. those um, T-tests, um, K-values. Mm -hmm. Gosh, what else is in there? But yeah, we tried that and we thought, I don't think our data is enough to actually use this mm. <laughs> we couldn't use the confidence we didn't have confidence in it because there was just too much randomness mm -hmm. uh, i guess you need more complicated models to either sort of add in that randomness i guess you don't need to know the source of it but you need some way of 
understanding it mathematically. I feel like we're going back to chaos theory again. It's probably not what we want uh, to know. Unfortunately, <laughs> it, it'd be something as simple as that we just didn't have the data. So sometimes someone's like, gas pipe would burst and then the data would just be wild or we'd have no data for a bit. And so we're just like, well, there goes three months of uh, measurements there. So we can't use that. <laughs> and then there was COVID. And so the lockdowns really affected data. Oh, so yeah. Like, well, mm. 2022, 2021, scrap that. Can't use it, that data because they're not operating as standard. But then... You start arguing, or should you, should we have? Because that w- that could have still been an indicator of how they operate under weird circumstances. Mm. But how re- repeatable are those weird circumstances? <laughs> I guess if you've got these large data sets, you need some way of managing it. There's this term I've heard, like mm. big data, and I don't know if there's a very good definition of what big data are. Um, given that you can get like terabyte hard drives quite cheaply these days, is that considered fake <laughs> or not? I used to collect an awful lot of data when I was in radiation science and you had like not a whole lot of time on a particle accelerator. So you had some beam time mm. and you collected all the data that you possibly could and then sifted through it later on. And you would easily generate terabytes of data. I don't know. Wow. Yeah, that is crazy. Yeah. How many data points would that be though? Because if it was like, one massive like 3d model then you kind of like have one thing to look at but if it was like lots of lots of little bits then you it'd be quite unmanageable yeah lots and lots of little bits really there wasn't like one just like 3d image that you were looking at it was pretty much the detector was on and you were collecting like an intensity at each pixel so you had this sort of like i guess you have like a grid pretty much of what was Mm. happening at that pixel at that instance in time and i remember when i was coding you would use something um like what i thought of as tables you put your data in a matrix of a certain size so it would be like how many ever columns wide you wanted it and how many ever rows big and you could hold like different variables within that but it was still like almost thought of as one variable i don't remember it well enough to not talk about it in a way that isn't confusing <laughs> but i feel like that's the start of the data analysis right managing the data and then figuring out what to do with it next yeah so i suppose like it was kind of say you you ran your experiment and you'd have like a time axis and then you'd have like temperature and then you'd have radiation in becquerels or I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's really great. Becquerel's is what's coming off a radioactive source, but um, yeah, like okay. grey, something like that, how much energy you've deposited, oh, yeah. something like that. Yeah. And then you'd, it, so you'd kind of be creating like a cube of data. That like <laughs> at this time point, at this, there was this temperature and then there was this other activity level and then there was some other variable that you care about that I don't know because I'm not a, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but then you could say like the similar thing about you know a, chem- a chemical plant that I guess you may be more familiar with. You'd have like temperature, mm. flow rates, concentrations, mm. pressures. Yes, I can understand this. Or, yeah, or your different <laughs> vessels in the system. And this is kind of what I remember from my masters. And you just have if you try to put that in a graph of time and all these different variables, you just have something that looked incredibly messy. Mm. Yeah. Yes, I've, I've I've tried that function in Excel. <laughs> Uh, but there were ways of sort of collecting the variables together Mm -hmm. so you had like one variable that represented three 
and I honestly don't understand how the maths behind this because it was more sort of like engineering level in my master's which meant it was about the application and not about the pure maths behind it so it was um I think it was principal component analysis is what we were doing and I remember being really good at applying it but thinking back I have no clue how it actually worked so what were you using it for pretty much what I said you had a bunch of variables so like 20 variables from a processing plant taken over time and you would take some of the data that would be your training data and you generate a model a mathematical model mm-hmm that explained how the variables interacted and then you'd apply that to the rest of the data to see how well it fit see if it could still mm. explain sort of the future essentially okay it kind of said that this this principal component explains like 30 percent of the variance in your data say and it's made up of these other variables that uh like i said the flow the temperature whatever else and then you'd have another mm-hmm. principal component that was made up of other variables that would explain a bit more variance in the data. And you basically included enough principal components to explain like 80% of the variance, and that was sufficient. <laughs> so I guess I understand the steps to applying it, but I don't understand the maths behind it. I don't know if it's something either you have encountered that's about terms like principal components or eigenvalues and eigenvectors that you could explain in a way that relates to what I've just said. I haven't touched it before, but I want to I wanna try it now. <laughs> principal component, like, as like a phrase I don't think I've used and or heard of, but the um, concept of kind of grouping together um, some variables that can influence data sets and kind of finding a way to mathematically represent them in a simpler way so you know computers can understand it better and work with it better um but still fully represents the system to me just sounds like a matrix uh and how you store that information um in a way where you can kind of get a system of you know equations or problems you know imagine like simultaneous equations uh and then put those different elements into a matrix problem so that's where you know these fancy terms like eigenvalues and eigenvectors uh come into the matrix (laughs) equation uh but it's the same system that you've always had it's kind of just making it look a bit nicer and then when you want to do kind of computational calculations computers just love working with matrices and then you just have to kind of take that output and then use it to find the coefficients that you needed you know in the context of simultaneous equations but you know the idea is you know you can use matrices for everything Uh, (laughs) (laughs) they're just so good (laughs) but they are confusing um especially when you like hear about them in different contexts as well because that's a very like pure math context but i feel like i've heard the matrices being introduced and used different ways uh you know maybe with each module i did at university um and so very very applicable to many things but the connection between each one is always a bit shaky yeah and i guess this is the problem i have sometimes because i tend to span multiple different disciplines everyone uses like slightly different terminology to refer to what is essentially the same thing Mm -hmm. and i tend to get a little bit confused and every time i speak to someone i feel like i get slightly closer to figuring out what this thing actually is (laughs) i guess it's finding the person that can explain it to you in a way that makes sense to you that's always the challenge yeah because it also depends on your background as like a listener to what method of explanation is gonna connect with you the most i mean that's just learning as well sometimes you know you connect with like a textbook that and you're like i'm gonna read every textbook of this author because they just seem to understand things 
Um, but yeah. uh, one of the, I forgot to say, one of the like main, I guess, benefits of a matrix is if you have loads of, loads of kind of data, data points and loads of different variables, and you can kind of put it in because it's quite hard to deal with. I mean, in the context of big data, it's quite hard to you know solve those systems of equations quickly and efficiently if you're you know by hand it is definitely impossible um you know i you were solving simultaneous equations when in gcses and then a levels but if you got a system of you know six simultaneous equations you'd be there the whole time um and still probably wouldn't (laughs) get there and so i think in the context of big data it's a way to kind of solve it and you know put it into the kind of a understandable form for you or the computer? I guess you'd be using just an algorithm. So say when I was doing the principal component analysis, I said I didn't quite understand the maths that was being used by the computer, but I understood the output and I could look at the output and say, does that make sense with what I've seen? And if it doesn't, Mm -hmm. then I'm probably applying the wrong algorithm because I don't understand it well enough. But so I guess there are two approaches you can take and understand the maths really well and know that the maths is doing the thing that it's meant to be doing. Or you can understand the system that you're modeling and know yeah. that you're modeling it well enough. I guess there's are two different approaches you can take as the pure mathematician and then the yeah. scientist slash engineer. Yeah, using maths as a tool. <laughs> About that whole difficult difficulty in learning, I do find sometimes with maths especially where someone can use different um, letters to represent the same variables. And so then you try to look up an equation yeah. And then you think, I don't recognise this, but I'm sure the same ideas are behind it. You just kind of got used to always using mm-hmm. like Y for the Y axis and X for the X axis. And then they start using something else. Like F of X. Everyone get all really confused when they first introduce functions to us. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's also about some of the terminology as well, like... um. PCR. Everyone knows what a PCR test is now, right? Because of COVID. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I was like, wait, what? Exactly. What's PCR? I've forgotten. <laughs> so, principal. <laughs> to me, that means principal component regression because that's where I first encountered it. <laughs> oh. But then in my master's, my master's project was looking at um, gene expression data and applying these different mathematical techniques to figure out what the patterns were in the gene expression data. So suddenly, mm-hmm. PCR meant two different things to me at the same time. So it also meant polymerase chain reaction. I was very yeah. confused for quite a while. I have a little game I play with my friends where whenever we see a, a row, we are like, what do we see? Because for me, I always see density, but there is a million different things for row. And it's ah. so funny when you see like the Greek alphabet, um, I don't think this is just going to be relatable to all the physicists, but um, there's so many <laughs> letters that I haven't seen before, and it just makes you think, why always go back to rho, to lambda, to all of the <laughs> classics when there's a million different um, Greek letters that I've never seen before, um, but people love to reuse, <laughs> <laughs> reuse rho as well. It's kind of the favourite. But rho is always density to me, um, no matter what happens. Cool, I can agree with that one. I wonder if you could just start making up your own symbols and call them some noise and then just start implementing them. And that could be <laughs> your claim to fame eventually. Like, you know, some people find new species. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you just created your, not created your own variable, but created your own naming system. Yeah. yeah. That's how it used to be, right? Like, there are curies and loads yeah. of other different units of measure. 
for certain things, so why not? I wonder if I will ever contribute so much to a field that I could have a Curie, because Marie Curie did a lot for radiation science. <laughs> True. Yeah. There you go, something to aim for. <laughs> you also have like Curie temperature and stuff as well, which is something I can't remember. But it's something to do, <laughs> something to do with like. Oh, I think it's uh, semiconductors. Maybe oh. I'm throwing something out there, but yeah, it may be wrong. So fact check this, please. <laughs> yeah, it, it, that probably will be I've wrong. I've never heard of a Curie temperature. Oh, it's a magnetic change. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. It's a magnetic change in the magnetic properties of a system. Okay, close enough. <laughs> Nothing to do with ionizing radiation, though. No. Not strictly anyway, I suppose. I guess this is a warning for anyone wanting to get into data science and apply these principles to lots of different huh. fields. Know what people are talking about when they start throwing terms out yeah. there first. <laughs> Don't be afraid to ask, what is that? Yeah, or ask to define every term in every equation that gets brought up ever, just so you're sure. And yeah. also, importantly, the units that they're in. Yes. <laughs> oh my god. Unit conversions. There's so many astro stuff where the units are in megaparsecs per, per kilometer per second and it doesn't make any sense. But that's just the way it is. So always check your <laughs> units in equations as well as what the symbols mean. Oh yeah, yeah. very important that is. Yeah. In, I had read that some of the maths that we've been talking about comes up in uh, machine learning or artificial intelligence. It's like essentially some of the maths behind how you train the AI to do a particular thing like the example i'd seen was using it to identify a tiger like you look at a tiger a picture of a tiger and you go oh, that's obviously a tiger but what are the things that you're looking at that tells your brain that is a tiger so you're obviously looking at the stripes the shape of its face its general size of the different features and these are all different variables that go into the algorithm that you use to train the ai so this is a tiger this is not a tiger yeah kind of like how the captures started you know when you're entering a website and it's saying are you a robot and then it says <laughs> click on the bikes that is like training data set for the ai to figure out ah right they're always bikes and then seeing what the um, common pixels are i guess or common pixel relationship from one to another oh wow yeah so are you saying that every time we do a capture we're helping train some ai yeah ah. I didn't know that. I'm not too sure how I feel about that. I feel like it should be disclaimed somewhere. <laughs> yeah, or, or the ones where it's like got squiggly letters. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and numbers, yeah. Well, I that's what I was told, that that can be training data. It makes sense, I guess, though. And, it, and it's very useful for, like, the postal service because everyone's handwriting looks slightly different. And then now oh, they don't yeah. have to have someone individually read addresses they they have um, an ORC uh, whatever optical recognition can't remember what the C stands for but you know when you're reading written stuff yeah. you can recognise it as text ah so I'm always pr quite proud of my skill of identifying weird handwriting because my own handwriting is really weird <laughs> <laughs> I've worked with a lot of people where you sit there for quite a while trying to figure out what a thing is and then when you get it it's like oh that's it I can understand anything you write now <laughs> one of my lab partners at uni I think it was like a four or a nine that they wrote really weirdly. Like they didn't write it in the same order I would. So I always looked at it and got the number wrong. Uh, which I guess is another argument for just letting the machines do it all. So you don't have to write anything down. It just sends the data to the thing that you need it to do. And then it just does the analysis for you straight away. 
And as long as I say, as I say, you sort of check to make sure that analysis makes sense. There you go. And check the sensor is working. Yes. I feel like you would sort of see that as you were picking up the data. I can't think of a reason why you wouldn't check that just inherently. But if you've been working <laughs> on rigs for too long, where like one thermocouple is always showing minus 20 and the other is showing 200 degrees Celsius, then clearly something's wrong. In my line of work, we have, I don't know how many thousands of sensors to collect energy data across hundreds of ah. places. So being able to check those sensors are always working is a challenge. And it kind of relies on knowing that that is a measurement that should have been taken or not. Because sometimes you think, ah, oh, is it zero because they've turned off the machine, which is no energy use? Or is there something wrong with the sensor? We won't know unless we have that human data to tell us. So I guess it, no matter how good your big data machine learning data science stuff is, there always needs to be a human element of just understanding what's going on. Bad data in. Bad data results out. Yeah. So I guess if we sort of go back to what I was saying before about this principal component analysis thing, um, I feel like this is probably something that works a lot better if you have some graphics to look at as well, because I, I think my explanation of explaining this amount of variance is probably a little bit difficult to take in via audio. But we did come across when we were planning for this episode, a website called builtin.com that seemed to have some good examples of how it works. And there was this this graph of a thing that was rotating that sort of helped explain <laughs> what it meant by understanding the variance. A scatter plot. Yes. It was it was a scatter plot and we've got you know, you wanna sort of find the least distance from what you think is the median relationship between them all. And if you know which one has the least variance from it or distance, um, <laughs> You found the thing that is most related, I suppose. And if you change the relationship, you can kind of see which ones are further away and which ones are less affected or more affected. Is that is that your understanding of it? That's what it looked like to me. Uh, would you agree with that, Emma, given your different background? Like, I feel like you're not as close to this. So if you can understand it, then maybe other people can understand our strange descriptions. Yeah, no, I think because it's also like Antonio was essentially describing how you calculate the standard deviation by just the difference between, I mean, there's all the factors, but the difference between the mean and, you know, every data point, and then it's searching to minimize that because then you can be more confident that the data does lie in that range. Um, and mm. so it does, yeah, it makes makes sense. It's just, it's searching for um, the kind of regression line that best fits the data in the scatter plot, right? Or have I totally just taken that the wrong way? I don't know. How does this differ then from like a standard deviation, I guess? Or is this like taking it a step further and looking at a whole host of variables? Yeah, I think this is more variables, I think. So the graph's looking at just two variables, so X and Y on this graph, right? So it, in mm -hmm. the line that it's sort of rotating round until it gets to the point at which all the data points lie closest to that line. It's essentially a line of best fit, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Then you do it does something to explain the covariance because there are two variables. So co. 
which mm-hmm. I don't quite understand. But I think it's the gradient of the line that's important, and it gives you something called mm-hmm. an eigenvector, and that eigenvector is useful somehow. <laughs> so yeah, I said I didn't quite understand the math, so I can understand some words. I, I think that I think <laughs> that I think here the eigenvector and the eigenvisor like representing the different solutions that you get, and so to the one line of best fit, you'll have an eigenvector and an eigenvalue that is you know for that solution. So it's kind of searching through them all until you find it, is what I would take from it. Um, But also I think the covariance comes from if these data points have errors on them, because you have that a lot of the time, whereas, um, you know, if you have like an error in your X and your Y, uh, you get like a data point and you get a little cross around it with the, you know, their region where that data point could be. The whiskers, or what else do they call them? Error bars. Error bars, yeah. (laughs) Thank you. <laughs> I, I know what you mean by whiskers, though, because you do get like box and whisker plots. Yeah, and so when you search for a line of best fit, sometimes you can weight it according to you know how big those errors are. Because if you have a data point with a really large error, you want that to be less considered into your results because it's more likely if it's not officially an outlier, because that is an official definition of an uh... outlier, which is great because when you can just you know get rid of the data points, which are terrible because they're outliers it makes sense but if they're not then you still have to include them and then they'll have like a large um error so you can try and do your analysis um based on those error bars and that's where covariance comes in because it's um kind of describing how the errors are influencing your line of best fit but there is no error bars in this part but i imagine they're there you know what that sounds very similar but obviously for a different application which is called a multi criteria decision analysis where instead of having error bars you're saying how much preference do i have for this variable so you use it in um, sustainability you want to optimize for multiple variables so like environmental impact social impact economic impact and then you could rank how important those things are Hmm. and then that helps you get towards the one answer so instead of having to consider like are wind time are wind turbines better for society or not because they could attack you know migrant birds then you can then optimize where is the best placement for for the wind turbines in terms of like cost um wind output to then generate electricity effect on environmental impact effect on social um impacts like flickering to people um sorry just i'm saying flickering to people like it's this is a thing but i'm guessing if they were casting a shadow over like someone's garden say and it's a frequency that might generate uh, i guess an epileptic seizure or something i suppose is where you're going yeah. ultimately or just be really annoying or just give annoying. you a headache yeah it could just be not pleasant to have mm. and people don't want that so then you could then say all right this is the thing that we need to optimize for or the thing that we care the most about and want to prioritize addressing and then rather than having loads of solutions you could start to narrow down solutions it seems very similar i would have never gone from emma's example of like sort of confidence in data sets which i understood from physical science to where antonia went with figuring out where wind turbines go but i do see the link so i guess you're just you're using the same maths pretty much just for different applications or similar principles i don't think it's the exact same maths maybe i not. think it's the multi-criteria yeah. decision analysis can be a lot more simple but it's like ranking your priorities first and then waiting adding the weights to mm-hmm. the score that they get 
because when Emma was started talking about so having your error bars on your data, I don't remember any of the data that I was working with explaining what the error was on that measurement. I guess because it, there was a lot of data anyway, right? And the errors presumably would be quite small in comparison to what you're measuring because these are all sensors that people check, as you say, Antonia, and they've set them up to be a certain way. So you don't necessarily need the error on that measurement as well. It's just sort of an inherent part of the system. It's not what you're interested in. I guess for engineering applications, but for physics, it's not a result without an error bar, is what I was always taught. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that's right. That is right. <laughs> so I guess that that's quite a good place to leave it, thinking about this sort of interaction between how physicists apply data science and how engineers might apply it in a different way, but to solve slightly more I don't know, how, what's the best way of describing it, I want to say there's more complicated or more real world application, as if physicists just aren't doing as good a job. It's a bit more theoretical. It's definitely more like applied to a situation in action. <laughs> I don't know. More practical? Yeah, something that's dynamic and has external variables versus something that you would normally control a bit more because that's what physicists like. Yeah, I guess I guess that is it. It's in the uncontrolled world or you're like trying to observe something that there are lots of variables and you're trying to narrow down which ones matter. But I suppose you could say the same for physics. When I was taught physics at undergrad, it was very much here is an algorithm that you apply to a defined problem. And it was all very like textbook stuff. And I couldn't work out why you had to do it that way and why you couldn't do it some different way. There was no scope for putting in that random variable. I don't know if that's what you'd say of it, Emma, because, I mean, it's been 20 years since I studied physics. It might have changed. Yeah, I'd say, I don't know, I feel like there's a lot of the time where I've done things with things we haven't seen before or, you know, had random variables kind of, like, integrate them into the issue and then you kind of have to deal with... But then, like, when you have, you have, like, you know, randomness in it, it always turned into a large data set problem. So all the things, you know, you could really do, like, some not easy stats on it, but it was kind of, like, I don't know, like, it was all very far-fetched, like, I don't know. I did big data problems on, like, particle physics and stuff that, you know, I'm never going to personally do and, like, isn't impacting much because of all the approximations that are a part of it at the level that I did it anyway. I imagine people are doing really impressive things in their actual you know jobs but um as a little <laughs> undergraduate project not really doing much um so I feel like in terms of like impact on lives for the stuff I was doing it was nothing yeah I wouldn't say the maths that I use is more complicated it's almost like I'm using the same logic to apply to different places and I still get, and I still get like different results and I'm trying to figure out why <laughs> Is it is it something that is happening for real or is it something something that we actually need to uh, mitigate? Well, maybe we can follow on some of these conversations in another episode and kind of figure out a bit more where the similarities and differences lie. Yeah, data science is a big topic and there's this great blog towards data science which people contribute how they've applied it and found interesting uh, results from as well. Yes, yeah, so there are loads of other resources out there from actual data scientists as well as people yeah. that use bits of data science in their careers and in their studies that's well worth checking out, I think. Ultimately, what we're saying is there are different levels of applying the maths to get what you need. And as long as you understand how you're applying it and you understand what you're applying it to, that's the important thing. So I suppose we'll leave it there. Thanks for listening and we will look forward to a future episode.
The views expressed in this podcast belong entirely to the person that said them. They do not represent any industry or organisation. If you enjoyed listening to these views, it would really help us out if you could rate us, leave a review and tell a friend. This podcast was sponsored by no one, but if you're interested in funding us to continue to have frank discussions about science and engineering, please get in touch.